This is Reno Levison, executive producer for ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com. In this episode of our podcast, we are presenting a remix of an interview by Chicago-based journalist Brett Stewart that he recorded with Blues Authority Bill Dahl, feature writer for Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Reader, radio broadcaster and author of the book Motown the Golden Years, and more recently, Art of the Blues, a visual treasury of black music's golden age. In this interview, Bill recalls his encounters with legendary performers like Muddy Waters, Lonnie Brooks, Professor Longhair, Otis Rush, Willie Dixon, Jimmy Johnson, Buddy Guy, and others, and remembers the clubs that featured them like Biddy Mulligan's in Rogers Park and Wisefull's Pub on Lincoln. Bill Dahl has also had a long career writing liner notes for many blues and soul recordings, including one that earned him a Grammy nomination. At Chicago Broadcasting Network, we aim to bring you interesting information about Chicago people, places, and performing arts, as well as Chicago history. And this episode has it all. If you enjoy listening to content like this, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast and our website at chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com. Most of our episodes are under 20 minutes, but this interview was so full of cool and unique information about Chicago and the blues that I found it difficult to cut too deep. So put on your headphones or crank up your speakers and enjoy this conversation with guest contributor Brett Stewart and Grammy-nominated liner notes writer and author of Art of the Blues, Bill Dahl. I'm sitting down with Bill Dahl, the author of The Art of the Blues, and the writer of a whole slew of different liner notes over the years, including liner notes that uh, you received Grammy nominations for. Thank you for being with me. Well, thank you for asking. It's it's such a pleasure to sit down with you. I picked up your book about two weeks ago, and I was just flipping through it, and it's so fascinating. It's called A Visual Treasury, a, Black's, a Black Music's Golden Era. And could you give me a bit of a rundown of how you came to creating this book and where the idea came from in the first place? Well, actually, the idea came from a company over in England. They're called a, they're book packagers. I wasn't even aware that there were middlemen like that in the business, but they contacted me, and they had different ideas for books, most of which didn't pan out, but this one did. It was just going to be a coffee table book about the blues. And it happened that my friend Chris James, who's a wonderful guitar player, blues player out in LA, or uh, San Diego, actually, he uh, collects ephemera of all kinds. And a lot of the stuff that you see in the book is from his own collection. That's why he's the art director on the cover there. And uh, a lot of it came from his friends as well. And then the company licensed in a lot of images from Getty and other sources like that. One of the coolest chapters in the book is the one on the old ads from the late 20s and early 30s out of newspapers, and those were licensed from the Baltimore Afro-American and the Chicago Defender uh, archives. Really? Wow. And so, uh, And then uh, once it was done, then that company in turn sold it to the University of Chicago Press, and they were the ones that actually published it. So it's a local you know publisher which is great right absolutely and it's a beautiful press it's it's this these you know wonderful uh hard binding and 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 really thick pages and gorgeous gorgeous prints and one thing that really struck me when i was going through and reading it and i know it was perhaps designed as a coffee table book but i've sat down and probably went cover to cover over the course of about an hour and a half uh is that all of these images even the older ones are are just so perfectly captured and preserved in this book. Uh, and I'm sure that, that was, that's the aim of the book. Yeah, a lot of that was due to this friend of Chris's. He's a photographer. And uh, they, he 
designed a little thing so they could take really crisp, clean pictures of the labels. A lot of times the label scans will look crappy, you know, that you see in these. You can tell they just pulled them off of the Internet or something like that, and Chris wanted them to really look good. And so his friend Todd did the uh, photos of those. He, a light box, I think he called it. I don't know much sure. about photography. so, But he, that's why they look as good as they do. So, you know... Originally, when the packager came to me, they wanted to take it right up to today, but I thought, who is going to pay that much money, $35 is a list price, for a book of pictures of blues guys from two weeks ago, you know, or pictures of <laughs> album covers that you could buy for three bucks at the local used CD store. So I said, let's cut it off in the early 70s, and we focused mainly on pre-war and the early post-war stuff, which you're probably not going to be able to find. Even if you can, you can't afford it anyway, so it's nice to have it in book form. Absolutely. Now, a lot of your career has specialized in the post-war music of, of soul and blues and the Motown, quite a bit of Motown. Right. Uh, could you give me a bit of a rundown of, of the type of writing that you were doing after you graduated Columbia College? Actually, I started writing here, believe it or not. Okay. There was a newspaper. It had the bluesy title of the CC Writer. <laughs> okay. and, uh, I didn't name it. And uh, so I started writing for that in 75, I think it was, doing blues stuff. You know, I think it was a record review, a little Willie John album. And they, I brought my album cover down to have it you didn't scan it in those days. Well, I guess they took a picture of it and they wrote on it. Oh, my God, I was horrified. You know, they put, like, marks on it. Ooh, <laughs> ruined it, in fact. And uh, so I, I, when I left Columbia in 77, when I graduated, I should say, um, there was a paper that still exists called the Illinois Entertainer. And I could tell they didn't really have anybody doing blues that was any too versed in it. So I sent them unsolicited some record review. They didn't print, but the guy called me up, the editor. His name was Guy Arnston. He said, hey, you want to start reviewing records it was 70 late 78 i think it was and i started doing a column for them and all kinds of and got to my god i got to interview people like muddy waters and albert king and bb king and fats domino you know i mean huge huge names in those days you could just walk up and say hi can you know you got time for an interview there weren't all these flax and middlemen and agents and managers and pr people in your way it was really easy in those days i did some work for a bar up in Rogers Park called Biddy Mulligans. A lot of those guys would play up there. Professor Longhair, for God's sake, came up there two weeks before he died, played a set and played a show, a couple shows actually, and uh, Bruce Iglar was there. He, he was on Alligator at the time, and uh, we did a wonderful interview with him. It was such a privilege to be able to get hold of little Milton Carl Perkins. Uh, people, I look back and think how privileged I was to be able to talk to the superstars that are no longer with us like that. And so I wrote for The Entertainer for a long time, wrote for Living Blues, wrote for Goldmine Magazine. And about the mid-80s, somebody wanted me to do a liner note on an album by um, a couple of people, Otis Clay, and then there was one on Alligator by Jimmy Johnson. And I did those. And it's hard to write liner notes for albums because, A, you can't fit many words on the back of an album cover. And, B, you're trying to sell the album rather than do some great historical overview. So, you know, it was cool, but it wasn't. It was nice to see your name on the back of an album, but it wasn't the end of the world either. But then when CDs came along and you got to go as long as you wanted in a lot of cases, I do stuff for Bear Family now. It'll go 40,000, 50,000 words. I mean, it's like right. it's almost a book, you know. They'll do a 12 by 12 hardcover book. And it'll be something really like we did a couple of Freddie Kings. I mean, even now, they're 
probably as much info on Freddie King as exists in one place. There is no book about Freddie, although I just helped his brother finish an autobiography, so there's a lot of stuff about Freddie in there. Benny Turner is his name. He's his bass player for many years. Very cool. So 2001, we did that Motown book, Motown, The Golden Years. That was fun. That was my first book. This is only the second one. Long gap in between. It's like my radio career. Like every 30 (laughs) years, I get a radio show. Well, every 15, I do a book. And we did that those liner notes uh, that got nominated for a Grammy on the Ray Charles box in 98. That was a lot of fun. And right now, the Blues Music Awards thing, the Arthur Crudup box that I did the notes for is nominated in the historical category. So I'm about to go to Memphis to do that to um, hopefully uh, win the award. Although that's certainly <laughs> not a given. There's some pretty strong competition. But uh, I love doing liner notes. That's my main thing. I like to, I don't know, it's just something about the form and everything. It doesn't take a lot of time, but when you're working on it, you really got to work hard. It's really intense trying to do interviews, and it's getting harder to interview people because they're all leaving us, unfortunately. So there's not as much first person as there used to be. It used to be a breeze, and it isn't anymore to find people that were there because, you know, a lot of liner notes, they don't really dig too deep, and I love to get in there and really, you know, try to find out what really happened. Like with the Freddie King thing, right? the discographies were so wrong and so screwed up and talking to the people that were actually on the sessions, we did a world of good in trying to fix that. And that's what you, you, know, you hope to do is you hope to change history a little bit for the better when you go in there than you came in and you, you knew some of that stuff was wrong and you're trying to sort it all out. <laughs> you know, oh, God, that can't be right. So it's a privilege to be able to do that too. When I was reading your your biography on your website and I was reading about how you had finally found your niche when you finally discovered that you could write liner notes and this is something you can make a living doing and do for a bevy of different labels and you have done it for a great many labels, uh, I was a little bit blown away because I had never imagined in my mind, oh yeah, it's somebody's job to write this and I love these yeah. because uh, my favorite thing about going and buying a record or, or buying a CD, it's one of the reasons I, I will hold on to physical media till the day I die, is because I like the booklet, I like the pamphlet, I like to read what writers like you have written. Uh, and I think that's a very important part of digesting that music, and especially if it's a physical medium like vinyl, where I can drop the needle on the turntable and then pull out the booklet and read the booklet and have that experience. Was, was that something you enjoyed before you had started writing liner notes? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, in those days, it was just albums, you know. And like I said, those are uh, more... The whole reason you wrote liner notes on albums was to make you buy the album, basically. This is a good record right. because. You should ha- own this because. And that was you were more a salesman than a uh, writer, you know, like a serious journalist. You know, you look back at some of the 60s liner notes on the back of those rock albums and they're hysterically inept. You know, they're written by like some DJ or something. Right. Just a favor from the record company, probably handing them a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And But it's become quite an art in recent years because and companies like Bear Family and Revenant, they've taken it to insane lengths. I mean, some of the books are bigger than books in the library. Right. Being three, four hundred pages with humongous photo libraries in them and everything, all in beautiful color like the book here it's a whole nother world now so that's what's so nice is that i'm glad to hear you say i hope a lot of other people are like you i wish there were more that still <laughs> want the physical product i'm a cd guy myself i'm trying to weed out when i get it on cd i get rid of the record because 
You get distortion. You get pops, snaps, crackles, sure. skips, and everything. That's why I'm not a big vinyl fan as opposed to CDs, which is as close to the C- to the master tape as you're likely to get. As far I'll never forget when I first heard a CD, I could hear things that I never heard on the records. They just weren't there on my old albums. I'm hearing like I remember on Clyde McFadder and the Drifters, "What You Gonna Do?" I could hear the the drummer playing the bell of the cymbal, and I thought, "Where did that come from? That's not on the vinyl pressing I've got. It's not even audible." <laughs> so that's what convinced me to start making the change that was geez 25 30 years ago whenever cds started to come out now you say that writing liner notes is in it in a way its own art form Mm -hmm. and i think you're absolutely right now that involves as you have alluded to going and talking to the session musicians going and talking to the artists is that something you'll still do if you're writing a reissue or you'll try to hunt down people that were there oh yeah always that's the fun part there's like three uh, three phases of these things doing the interviews i love with a passion transcribing the interviews i hate with a passion (laughs) and then you actually have to write the thing and that can go either way I miss the major labels a lot. You know, Universal, for example, used to do a lot of great stuff from the Chess catalog and the Motown catalog and everything. They're pretty much out of the CD business, per se. You know, they just do this. If they do anything, it's that streaming and all that stuff. And I I can't imagine paying 99 cents to to lease a song, in effect. Physical copies is the way to go as far as I'm concerned. I'm certainly not getting rid of my CDs. So a lot of this stuff is just locked away like it's in Fort Knox, and you're never going to hear it again. So it's another reason to hold on to your CDs. Is that, a, is that problematic when uh, you're trying to preserve the history of a genre like the blues and you have indie labels that want to help create these, uh, you know, these giant CDs of all these re- artists and their masters and they can't get a hold of them? It's incredibly problematic. You know, between the price of them and the fact that they don't want to license out unissued tracks, let's say, for what reason, I have no idea because they're never going to do anything with them. It's a terrible problem. And, you know, there was a humongous vault fire a few years ago at Universal. It's not well known, but I'll let you in on something. All the chess masters are gone. All the Duke Peacocks are gone. The Excellos gone. ABC Paramount gone. If it wasn't digitized before that fire, it's all gone. So all that unissued chess stuff... Soul stuff in particular is history, and that's heartbreaking to me. Duke Peacock, you know, none of that stuff ever got done past Bobby Bland and to a certain extent Junior Parker, and it's just gone. Wow. And I don't, you know, there's just no way unless there's uh, like dupes sitting in Europe somewhere that nobody knows about. We'll never hear all that, you know, Buddy Ace clean off a tape or Joe Hinton or Ernie Cado or the Malibus or anything like that. That you didn't back that up is just mind-boggling to me. And that's not the first time that's happened. Remember in the early 70s, mid-70s, there was an Atlantic vault fire that wiped out all the unissueds. Uh, they had it separated, so the unissued's burned. That's weird unto itself. Makes you wonder about the circumstances. But, right. Uh, I've actually handled some of those tapes that got burned a little bit. It was very bizarre. One time a, a friend of mine invited me to go into the Atlantic, you know, vaults a little bit. This is only about eight, ten years ago. And I remember pulling one out off the shelf, and the bottom was all black, you know, where wow. it singed a little bit. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of scary. (laughs) (laughs) I did find some stuff that didn't burn, which I was kind of interested in, but they've never done anything with any of it either. It's just like even the people at work there can't get anything done anymore as far as being, you know, putting out the stuff. They just don't think it's worth the time to do a thousand or two thousand copies of something. So it just sits there in the vault forever. Right. So it's maybe not necessarily because the people who work at Atlantic or wherever don't want to put it out. It's just not commercially viable enough to make money on it. 
in their eyes, yeah. I'm, you know, in the in the big people's eyes, you got guys underneath that are desperately wanting. I know one guy that's wanted to do a box set for years and years. It works in their in the vaults at at Wea. They just not interested in doing it. So he's, you know, always frustrated about that. But there's nothing that can be done. So what I want to talk about and backtrack a little bit is your interview process with a lot of these artists. You've had the opportunity, as you said, to interview a lot of your heroes, whether that be uh, Muddy Waters or Albert Collins or uh, Professor Longhair you mentioned earlier. Are there any particular instances with any of these interviewees that just resonate particularly profoundly or poignantly for you all these years later? All the early ones, going to Muddy Waters' house in Westmont in 1981 was pretty <laughs> pretty wow. mind-boggling. What was that like? He was sitting there at his kitchen table wearing a Japanese bathrobe and looking much like a regal potentate from some far eastern you know, country. And he says, how many questions you got for me? And I said, oh, about a couple hundred. And he, okay. And then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I left my buddy in the car outside and it was a cold morning. It was like eight in the morning. I don't know, it was an ungodly hour for me. And at the end, here because my buddy walking up the street and as I'm leaving Muddy's house and he goes, oh, is that your buddy? And I said, yeah. He said, why didn't you have him come in? And I thought, oh, boy. I think because he didn't want to interrupt, you know. But So that one. And, you know, Fast Domino, I was so nervous. It's about 79 or 80 sometime because I was buying his records when I was three and singing them on the street corner. I was a weird little kid. And uh, I'm going to be a wheel someday was one of my, you know, big ones. And <laughs> so I go in there, and Lee Allen, his legendary sax player, introduces me to him. He goes, you know, Bill, don't you, Fats? And Fats looks up and goes, nope. <laughs> I thought, oh, God. So I'm asking him questions really, really fast because I'm really, really nervous. And he's answering really short because he's very shy, believe it or not. And he had this cup of beer in his hand. He spilled it all over his red pants because I asked him too many fast questions. And now I'm looking down at his knee dripping on the floor. I'm thinking, oh, geez. And he, uh, Flunky immediately comes over and wipes his knee off with a towel. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool to have a guy like that, you know? <laughs> Turned out the guy was Reggie Hall, who wrote the song You Talk Too Much for Joe Jones back in 1960. Wow. He was his valet at that point. <laughs> And he had a minor hit called The Joke in 61, I think it was, on chess out of New Orleans there. So those, you know, BB, that was my same buddy that got left in the car. He was with me that day, and he touched Lucille. I'll never, I cringed. I, oh, my God, don't touch Lucille. Oh, my God. Uh, BB didn't look too happy about that, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, my buddy's a Columbia grad, too, incidentally, um, where he used to be on the radio together. So those guys, Albert King, he was kind of gruff a little bit. Carl Perkins was the nicest guy I ever met in my life. And he had this wig that came out in a little pompadour, and I remember being fascinated about that. So the whole time I was talking to him, I was really looking up there all the time at the way the pompadour came out of the top of his head. I hope he didn't notice. He asked me if I minded if he smoked on his bus. I thought, no. <laughs> it's your bus. Do what you want. So, you know, as time went on, you get a little less awed, I guess, you know. But, boy, those early ones, especially because they were such big, big guys, just, you know, I was in a state of constant amazement. Professor Longhair, that was the only time he came to Chicago and did a public gig. He had done a soundstage at Channel 11 once that I didn't get to see, you know, in person. But uh, Biddy Mulligan's had a dressing room that it was let smaller than from you to me. It was like a closet. And so we were right on top of each other, and he was sitting there eating onion and garlic potato chips, jays. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And he had dark glasses on, so I couldn't look into his eyes at all. But uh, he was real nice. That, that's exactly how I would picture a Professor Longhair interview going, actually. Yeah, he was wearing that same blue jean jacket with all the little medals on it that he always had in all the pictures on oh, it wow. after he came back. You know, He was real nice and 
pretty outgoing. I mean, so, you know, I was a terrible interviewer in those days, just awful. I remember asking Martha Reeves of Martha and the Vandellas questions like, so you did Heat Wave, right? Boy, you're going to get a big <laughs> response that, yeah. Good job, Bill. I listened back to these early ones. Ah. <laughs> now I've become really good at it. So I'll sit there just like you got all your notes. Back then I thought it was really cool to do it without notes. Bad move, Bill. So uh, <laughs> you got the notes in front of you. It's a lot easier, honest. And, uh, you know, so if I don't get a question, I'll just kind of come back to it later on, circle back around, give it another shot, and maybe get the answer the second time around and get it right. It, it sounds like you have had experiences with some of your heroes that were, were really extraordinary in the sense that they seemed like they were also good people to you a lot of the time. I'd say about 90%, yeah, and I'm not going to name the ones that weren't. There were a few that were extremely disappointing, you know, rude or just not into it or drunk or whatever, but the great majority of them, you know, they knew how to, either they were, like people at Motown were trained to do this kind of stuff. So oh, absolutely. So they knew exactly where, what to give you and what not to give you and just, you know, channel you right into where they wanted you to go, and it was great. And then... The folks that didn't do many of them were so excited to be doing them. Like when I did the notes on that series of Motown, uh, they call them the Complete Motown Singles box set series. There was 14 of them, about five CDs on each. So you had about 80 CDs of Motown, every A and B. A lot of the rock bands, had, the guys had just never done an interview before in their lives. They, Motown must have just not promoted that stuff at all. And so they were just excited to tell their story for to somebody. The last lady I interviewed, who unfortunately has passed away since then, um, Michelle Aller, I don't think she'd ever even been interviewed and turned out she was in the lady sings the blues a diana ross movie turned out she had been in a mamas and papas offshoot group called the babies who knew (laughs) she had one single on motown she was just so excited to tell her story and everything it was just a pleasure to speak to her you know and that's when it's really fun when you start getting the chill up your spine you're thinking geez nobody's ever done this before this is you know virginal material here we're getting that would have been lost had i not call this person up so absolutely that's when it's you know fun you feel like you're doing little historical stuff that's the right thing to do get it on tape get it on paper before it's too late and indeed she passed away you know a couple years after that box came out so i hope she saw it and liked it when you look back at your body of work and all the stuff you're continuing to do like this book what resonates with you as as this was the work that i cataloged something that would have been lost that that sticks in your mind that you are proud of particularly if there's anything because there's so much of it i I, you have such an incredible body of work that's so big thank you Uh, the motown stuff i think in particular because that was so much fun you know when we did those it was like three guys doing notes at the same time Uh, our boss was doing some a guy over in england named keith hughes who's a motown historian was kind of doing the history of the records themselves and everything and i was trying to do the interviews a lot of that and uh, then Harry Weinger, our boss, would put it all together. And I think it came out great because, you know, that way nobody – it didn't read exactly like any one of us, but it was uh, eminently readable and it, it hit all the bases in effect. You know, I might go too hot on uh, quotes, let's say, where they'd put in more of the history part, the background that maybe I didn't have privy to or anything. So that one was a lot of fun. And it stretched out for years. I mean, we were doing those things for like four or five years. Just kept doing them, kept doing them. I, I thought maybe right. it would stay. The first one was from 59 to 61. Then we did 62, 3, 4, 5, like that. I thought maybe it would peter out in the mid-60s, but we just kept going. Got to 70, <laughs> just kept going. Ended up going all the way through 72. I thought, man, this, I was hoping by that time, hey, maybe we can do all the 70s too. It didn't work out that way. But uh, 
We did a lot of, got a lot of songs there, man. It's <laughs> a lot of records. See, that actually sounds like it borders on into investigative journalism in a capacity, very most certainly. So. Yeah. yeah, very much so. And that's the fun part for me is tracking down people, finding phone numbers. For There was a gentleman named Chico Leverett. He's one of the satin tones, and he'd had his voice box removed, had cancer. So we talked mostly about email. Unfortunately, my computer crashed and I lost those, but... What I do have still is the one little recording we did with him with the mechanical voice box. Wow, I mean, that's dedication to try to even talk like that and answer a few questions, you know. And he cared. He really wanted that story to be told. And a lot of those guys are like that. They want their history to be known before it's too late. He's left us too. I didn't even know it a couple of years ago. But, um, you know, we're losing those people left, right, and center. And to try Lonnie Brooks and James Cotton in the last month alone. Yeah, I, I I went to Lonnie Brooks's funeral. Did you? I would love to. And it was it was heartbreaking for me as someone who was such a massive fan of him. He's uh, another one. Early on, I interviewed him three times within about three years, and he was such a nice guy and such a outgoing guy. You know, first met him seventy eight before he even wore a blue jean jacket. He's wearing a brown suit, and it's a Wise Fools Pub. Which when I was starting to go see live blues. That was the place to go on the north side, Wise Fools. It was a wonderful room. They did four-night gigs, Wednesday through Saturday, so you had some time to go see them. I'd go see Otis Rush or Fenton Robinson. And then one day they had Albert Collins come to town, so I was all excited about just loaded. And Lonnie was the backup band. That's when I met him that night. And I couldn't get close to Albert. That's how crowded it was to even say hello or anything. It was Didn't get an autograph, didn't get anything. And uh, later on I got to interview him, and that was a kick too because he was so quiet off stage, so shy, so humble. You know, he was up there on stage. He looked like a million-watt incandescent bulb on stage. You know, he just <laughs> glowed when he'd come out in the audience and go outside on a you know, zero-degree night and be playing out there with steam coming off of his head. <laughs> it was just an astounding sight. whole crowd would leave behind him. There would be nobody left in the room but the band playing. Everybody else would be outside. Wow. You don't see stuff like that anymore. No, uh, not particularly. He was just like, he sizzled like nobody else I've ever seen. In live performance, by far the best I ever saw on in the blues circuit. Second probably being Arthur Adams, my buddy out in L.A., He's got that same kind of charisma where, you know, people are just, he'll walk through the crowd too, and he's still with us, thankfully. Um, Arthur's, a, he looks sort of like a big bear. He's a shaved okay. head, big, he looks fierce, but he's a teddy bear, you know, in reality, but uh, he'll be playing and just people will just be dazzled by it. Great singer too. And those guys are leaving us unfortunately and when there's nobody replacing them in my eyes at least i mean contemporary blues it's there but does it excite me no <laughs> i gotta be honest here <laughs> let me be i'm trying to be honest I'll, uh... certainly and actually you you've jumped ahead to something i wanted to talk about which was the future of blues and it is a very precarious place right now I don't know that there is a future, really. I mean, I shouldn't be saying that because, you know, the contemporary thing, you go to the Blues Music Awards, but it's such a little insulated thing. I mean, it's all these people that go on these blues cruises and they all love each other, but nobody outside that little crowd really knows about it. And since Robert Cray, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and ZZ Hill there in the 80s, there's been nobody that's crossed over into any kind of mainstream recognition kind of thing. You know, it's just there are some great players like Chris James. I'll plug him until the day I die. <laughs> or Nick Moss, Chicago's very own, who's one of the best players you'll ever see. But there aren't 
many people around that do it and care enough to make it sound like blues as opposed to rock, as opposed to, you know, most of what passes for blues on the contemporary scale is just rock. Sure, it says rock in a 12-bar Yeah, uh, yeah exactly, setup. Exactly, and, exactly. And, you're th- and I read a different interview with, with you maybe about four years ago where you said that you still hadn't seen any you know, worthy successors to this heritage. And obviously that's a sentiment that you still hold today. Uh, and I was thinking about it, and I even think about Lonnie Brooks's sons, who are you know Wayne and Ronnie, and they're certainly not young men. You know, they are mm. they are now part of that older lineage of blues artists that their father was a part of, or Little Ed, or you know guys like sure. that that were just considered. Well, I remember that album I did the notes on the New Blue Bloods back in what was it seventy nine? I think it was. I mean, those were the young up and comers. Man, those are the elders now. You know, I mean, and the ones that are left. A lot of them have passed away. Professor Eddie Lusk, Michael. Coleman, they're gone, you know. So we've lost part of that generation too. It's uh, it's all kind of sped up in a way, you know. The guys that were looked upon as the future of the blues, they're gone too. So now it's another generation. But man, I'm just not hearing it. Most of that stuff, other than Chris and Nick and a handful of others, I don't hear it. I'm sorry, I just don't, you know. And I'll sit there and. Just get bored out of my skull if you want the truth. Either it's a guy trying to do an imitation of somebody I love from that I knew, you know, 30 years ago, or else it's just rock being passed off as blues, and it's it's kind of distressing in a lot of ways. So I'd be curious. Uh, there's a line that obviously has to be walked here that you don't want to sound overly derivative. You don't want to sound like you're imitating an artist that someone else has loved years prior. We call it the museum factor. You know? The museum factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to alienate the heritage and the authenticity of the genre, right. which can be done very easily by jumping into rock and roll and make and you know which i'm sure a lot of producers probably push those artists in that direction for commercialism uh so what is a up-and-coming blues artist that can be successful what do you think they need to sound like do you think they need to experiment outside of a zone but not too far that they're moving into other genres what do you think a real good songwriter at the top and a real good singer those are the two things i don't hear the singing at all right you know the vocals have become almost second well not almost just secondary to playing as many notes as you possibly can on a guitar Nobody wants to hear piano players. Nobody wants to hear harmonica players. They just want to hear that guitar, and they just want them to burn, just shred, you know? And to me, that's about the most boring thing on earth. It's not chops. It's what you do with it. Yeah, I think you actually said in that interview that that, that a lot of players mistake speed and aggression for, for power or oh, something yeah. along that line. Yeah, I mean, Albert Collins, man, he took one note and hold it for two minutes. It would just right. ring through the rim like it was coming from God himself, just came down from the sky, and that was a whole other world. It was transcendental. I don't see anything like that now, where you just sit there with your mouth open going, oh, my God, it's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. It, right. I can't imagine anybody in their 20s having that kind of transcendental experience hearing this stuff, where you just, with your, oh, geez, you know, you go out and your whole world has been changed. I just can't imagine it. I'll never forget the Blues Music Awards a couple of years ago. Some young guy whose name I'll mercifully leave out won 
for the Blue Soul Award over a couple guys like, say, let's say Otis Clay and somebody else. You know, Otis never got one, incidentally. And uh, even though he was there, I just felt terrible for him. And the guy got up there and actually had the nerve to say, yeah, it's been a tough five-year climb or something like that. Oh, jeez. No. Oh, oh, I just no. wanted to cry. And Otis back there, a 50-year climb, and he's still climbing because he didn't win. So there you go. And it was you know, it's heartbreaking to because, again, it's this Blues Cruise crowd that votes on those awards, and they don't care about these old guys, so the heck with them. And, you know, the history of the thing is everything to me. If I'm lucky enough to win in a couple of weeks or if the thing I worked on is I'm, you know, doing the little award uh, representation, I'm going to hopefully have time to say, please keep buying these uh, reissue CDs. This is the history <laughs> you're supposed to be learning about. You know, you're supposed to cherish this stuff. It isn't just who played on last week's Blues Cruise. Certainly. And you mentioned that, you know, Albert Collins could play a note for two minutes and it would just be transcendental. Mm-hmm. I think about some of the blues artists who are most pivotal to me. Uh, and obviously, I'm 21 years old, but the first blues artist I ever listened to was Big Bill Brunsey. So I kind of went in a very weird... Uh, uh, right. navig- I navigated my route through blues very bizarre. And one of my all-time favorite performers for example is Howlin' Wolf and you look at Howlin' Wolf he was he was a vocalist that was the right. that was the primary instrument for him in the way he performed that's why he was called Howlin' Wolf because yeah. he was trying to sound like Jimmy Rogers and he was trying the yodel and it didn't sound a whole lot like yodeling and someone said he sounded like a Howlin' Wolf uh, and a lot of Charlie Patton in there too. Absolutely, you know he played serviceable harmonica and a little bit of slide guitar, but he certainly was no virtuoso on guitar. But even someone like BB King, uh, who was a virtuoso on guitar, right. he would he would belt out a note and he'd hold that note and he wouldn't play while he was singing. Usually he couldn't. He didn't have that. It always had to be a call and response thing. He was always right. kind of sensitive about that. That he couldn't accompany himself on chordal. You know, underneath he could only play the little the lead lines as a, like a response to what he just uh, sang. A lot of those guys were like that. Freddie King didn't play much in the right. chords underneath either. Albert King didn't either. Chris, he was tuned funny. <clears throat> Same with Albert Collins. They really couldn't play a lot of chords because they were tuned in odd ways. But that was, you know, it was very much a vocal medium. That man wanted to tell you a story, whether he had an instrument in his hands or otherwise, whether he's a piano or whatever. Whole different world. Now it's just guitar hero bombast and that bores me senseless you talk about the way you came to it i was it came to it oddly myself because when i was a little bitty kid i liked fats domino and lloyd price and the coasters and the drifters and jerry lee lewis and elvis i never ever liked the blues rock groups that most people my age came to it the led zeppelins and all that stuff god that's to me is just horrible stuff so i came at it a very odd way too but that's good because it enables you to step away from that usual thing and come at it in a very different manner. And you probably learn a lot more that way than doing it. You know, oh, I got to hear Fog Hat and Aerosmith do, you know, old Muddy Waters <laughs> right. songs. Boy, that's not the way to do it in my book. But Right. And, but actually, you know, you look at some of those artists, for example, uh, Howlin' Wolf. I'll go back to him for an example. Uh, and Howlin' was an artist that was discovered by a whole different generation because the Stones introduced a whole new generation to him because they forced Shindig to let them bring him on. And I think one of the unique things about the blues, and especially uh, people who were younger in the 50s and the 60s, is that they would listen to a record, and it would often be by a white artist, uh, uh, someone like Elvis or someone else like that, and it would have 
a different name on the on the liner saying who wrote this song because they they would have a white artist do the song. Oh yeah, and. It's not like today where you can just go on Wikipedia yeah. and find who that songwriter was. So for a lot of people, that became a mystery. And then you could finally figure out, you know, F Domino, who is that? Right. You can finally figure that out now. And that helps create that lineage in your mind of who wrote these songs and whatnot. Especially with Arthur Crudup in the case of Elvis, you know, between the three songs that Elvis covered that's all right. So glad you're mine and my baby left me. That was everybody's uh, route to Arthur Crudup. He, right. Nobody would have known about him back then without it because, you know, he'd been forgotten entirely, unfortunately, by the even by him, by the mid 50s. You know, he was already on his way out. You know, it's funny, too, that shindig clip of the wolf there. It's one of my favorite things is watching James Burton playing guitar behind him. Talk about a weird confluence of people in the room. Billy Preston <laughs> on piano. Uh, that piano that looks like it isn't even operating, but I guess it was. And then you, because it's a live clip, obviously. And then you got Burton smiling the whole time in the background, getting a big bang out of playing behind Holland Wolf. Everybody's trying to figure out who that was. It was just Burton because he was the house, you know, guitar player. Now he'd been with Ricky Nelson uh, from '57 all the way to then and past then. So you're talking about a very strange confluence of acts all coming together to play great. <laughs> I mean, Burton was one of the greatest guitar and still is one of the greatest guitar players ever to pick up an instrument to me. And, of course, that was brought together by a bunch of young 20-somethings from, from yeah. England who thought it was really cool. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about the British invasion is that a lot of those guys, the Stones in particular, they wanted to come to Chicago. They wanted to experience it. Even recently, they released a blues record, which mm-hmm. is an interesting record. I don't know if you've listened to it. I've not heard it. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, but there's one thing I would say about it is that it is undeniable that they love that music. Oh, yeah. That it's not a record they recorded because they wanted to make money off it. It is a record because they were in the studio, they decided to play some blues, and the mics were on. Uh, uh, named that one instrumental, 2120 South Michigan, when they recorded it there, which right. was nice. Probably a lot of people, that was the first time they'd ever heard that address <laughs> in any right. way, shape, or form. <laughs> but, oh, I've seen the Stones a couple of times. Yeah, I like this. And I'm glad they didn't insist on playing behind Wolf on that clip, too. It was nice that they let the house band do it instead. And it was good, I think, when a lot of artists did do that. You know, for example, the Beatles would champion a lot of African-American artists when they would go on tour, whether they had the... Uh, they, in particular, seemed to champion more of the, the girl group yeah. side rather than the Stones and the Blues, so they would tour right. with the Ronettes and that sort of thing. But a lot of these white artists allowed people to experience African-American artists because, in particular, one thing I would like to ask you about is, have you ever... I'm, sh- I'm sure you have a thought on this. When you look at the way Americans started to digest blues music. It seems like Europeans and Brits turned us on to our own music because the blues is being made here. Not a lot of Americans were listening to it. All the British loved it. They were listening to it. We weren't putting, uh, you know, the clip I, the first blues clip I ever saw with Big Bill Brunsey, When Did You Leave Heaven, uh-huh. is a BBC clip because the Americans wouldn't, wouldn't put a black guy down in front of a camera and record him for PBS or whatever was available to record him on. And then when the British invasion came on over, they said, hey, this is what we got it from. We got it from you. Uh, I think there was a lot more down south than we're aware of, you know, as far as young white kids, especially in the frats and all that stuff. They'd bring in a lot of those kind of acts, you know. It's been said that, that like in the early 60s, you can on Rush Week or whatever down in those southern universities, you might find Hank Ballard over in that frat house and uh, James Brown over in this one. And down <laughs> the street would be Doug Clark and the Hot Nuts. And, you know, they'd, so they were hip to it. But the mainstream certainly wasn't. And up north, they certainly weren't. 
And so that, yeah, I'm sure that a lot of, you know, especially the collegiate types up north and everything got into it directly from the stones and the yard birds and the animals and the pretty things and those kind. I always thought the animals kind of had the best groove of any of those British Right, and you'd pick up one of those records and say, who is J.L. Hooker, right? Yeah, yeah. And they would turn you in that direction, hopefully. Right, sure. Yeah, you know, a lot of that, I do like the animal stuff a lot, I'll admit to that. You know, especially the original stuff that they did, the real rave-up stuff is nice. You know, and uh, obviously Sonny Boy Williamson made those albums with him. I've never believed that quote where he said, those boys want to play the blues so bad and they do or whatever it is. That sounds like some British wags cute little line. <laughs> I don't think a blues guy would really come up with something like that. Anyway, it sounds like something Winston Churchill might have said more than right. Sonny Boy Williamson, you know, like he's trying to be witty and urbane, you know. A, I, what Sonny Boy would have said if he didn't like him would have been a lot cruder and ruder, and we won't say that <laughs> on the radio, but... Uh, uh, I, I want to reroute back to Chicago blues for a moment. You have been uh, heavily involved in the Chicago blues scene really ever since your college days. How have you watched it evolve over the years? Because have you been in, in Chicago since whole, then? Whole life. Whole yeah, life. Whole, for better or worse, whole life. Okay. Yes, uh, as my bank book would attest. But uh, <laughs> yeah, sure, I mean, in the late 70s was really when blues was starting to come onto the north side real heavily. I've never owned a car, so I was never able to do a lot of that south and west side bar hopping that a lot of the other folks, you know, the writers were able to do unless they took me along. But uh, Wise Fools was the place in the 70s pretty much. I didn't, I was too young to have seen the Big Johns and Mother Blues of the mid-60s. I was just doing some Paul Butterfield notes the other day. Really? And okay. The, and though that scene, I was way too, I would have been like 10 years old. Right. So I didn't get to experience that. So that would have been fun. But I didn't come on until seven. My mom, I was so young, my mom, and I'm kind of timid, my mom took me to see Otis Rush at some little joint, <clears throat> pardon me, at, um, it was off of Diversity, Clark and Diversity, it was called Zim's, it was a little basement joint, nobody was there, Otis Rush was playing, my mom and her boyfriend took me, and I was scared to death, of course, to even be in the room. <laughs> And Otis was there, and I remember they're adjusting the lights right before the set started. And I remember hearing him say, I don't care if they can see me. I just want them to hear me or something to that effect. And I'm like, well, that's cool. And so I talked to him in between, you know, sets and set up an interview and everything. And Otis just never had too much to say. He's a shy guy. I didn't, you know, but we tried anyway. And then I started going to see him all the time at Wise Fools. Fenton Robinson, God, he was the mellow blues genius, they called him. Very smooth guitar, played a little jazzy. Great voice. Again, the voice thing. Same with Otis. Great voices. Right. And um, so Wise Fools is happening there for a while. Real strong. Willie Dixon, Memphis Slim was there. All kinds of people. James Cottonoise did Christmas Night. Couldn't get in the door. And then I started going to Biddy Mulligan's way up in Rogers Park. That became the happening place in the late 70s, early 80s. They sponsored my radio show, so I had access to all the acts that came in. Sort of, if no, they, even good. if they didn't want to do the interview, they sort of figured, well, maybe I won't get paid if I don't talk to this little kid. Right. So, <laughs> and then, you know, then during the mid-80s, Kingston Mines was always there, too. It was a little further south. It was on Lincoln until the back end collapsed one night. <laughs> famous story. Wow. Yeah. It was a block north of Wise Fools. And then they moved to their current location. Across the street was a place called Blues, still is. And I hung out there for many years, mainly in the mid-80s. Um, did a newsletter for them and everything. Did a lot more interviews then. And that's a real nice room because it's so intimate and 
small, you know, when you saw Otis Clay there with a the horn section, it was pretty heavenly, I'll tell you. Right. They used to bring up the high rhythm section. He, there was this one summer where they would come up once a month. Oh, God, it was spectacular because, you know, then the grooves are in the exact right. Southern grooves are a little slower, a little more laid back. The drums are a little more behind the beat. And to hear Howard Grimes on drums and to hear the Hodges brothers, man, that was killer. And <clears throat> that was once in a lifetime. Did the sound change over the years? From sure. In, in what ways, most notably, do you think rockier, really louder, okay. less? There became the they call it the set list from hell, <laughs> and it involves Mustang Sally is number one, Down Home Blues is number two. You know, when I started going every day, I have the blues and Stormy Monday were the ones you kind of groaned when you heard. Nobody ever plays every day. I have the blues at this point. It's always the doggone Mustang Sally and Down Home Blues. Someone else is less stepping in. Thrill is gone. Mojo, Sweet Home, Sweet is Home Chicago, one, yeah. right? Uh, and those are and it became a tourist attraction. And when that happened, it all went to hell. If you'll pardon the expression, it just did. It became something. This repertory thing where they had to play this certain set of songs. Those clubs closer to the loop were particularly rough on that, where they were almost told what they could play and you know, how to play it. And, I don't know if you're aware, but there was at one point there where a certain club on Lincoln Avenue that isn't blues had sort of a racial quota where the bands could only have so many white guys in the uh, in the band. Really? They were not booked if they had too many white guys playing in there, and that had to be overcome. They called it the plantation mentality where the bosses would tell you who you could hire and who you couldn't, and some guys just said, the heck with this, I'm out of here, and others buckled and did it. So that... And all this stuff combined definitely diluted what was going on in the blues scene in Chicago. I remember when I was writing for the Tribune there in about 97, they wanted controversy and they had me write about what was wrong with the blues scene in Chicago. Oh, a lot of people got mad on that one, let me tell you. But a lot of stuff was wrong by the mid-90s, you know. It had become a very tourist-oriented thing on the north side of Chicago and there wasn't a whole lot happening. And they started not bringing in any national acts anymore because they cost too much money, even Blues Etc., which was Blues Sister Place. They, for a while, they were bringing in some real nice national acts, and then they cut back real heavily on that. And there was nowhere to see a traveling guy on the north side like a little Milton anymore or an Albert King. They kind of faded on out. Sure. And that was real bad. So, you know, the old Chitlin Circuit acts no longer had a place to play because it cost too much. You know, I don't know if you're aware, too, that bars pay a lot less now than they did back in the 80s for bands. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Everything else went up sky high, but the a night, you know, uh, wages for a blues musician, especially a sideman, are pretty paltry, even at the big clubs, even at the well-known ones. And it wasn't always that way. Let's say back in the 80s, bam, I'd have got a grand well-known band on a weekend night. You'd be lucky to get 400 now. And that's <laughs> that's pretty sad, isn't it, to treat you know, what's the last few guys that are left like that? And that's why you don't see a lot of those bigger name guys playing local clubs very much because they just say, nope, ain't doing it for that. And I'm sure they probably don't want to continually play the set list from hell. No. Uh, because no, no. <laughs> the big name guys wouldn't do it. You know, it's, right. it's the meat and potatoes, you know, doing this for a living kind of band. Sure. Might have sure. a Tuesday and a Thursday at one place and a Wednesday over here. And yeah, they feel the need to do that, unfortunately. But I'm happy that you mentioned it because in my interview with Bruce Iglauer, he mentioned the exact same thing. That uh, he said that even at, at, at a certain club or two in the city, 
they'll be required to play certain songs. Sure. And that uh, plays into the tourist attraction aspect of it. And the plantation thing, too, right. where they think these uh, musicians are kind of their property to do with what they please instead of looking for any kind of inspiration musically on the stage like we used to see from an Otis Rush where I swear to you the hair would stand up on the back of your neck. I mean it was just <laughs> like the hounds from hell were had invaded you know and it was just astounding to see the emotion coming from this guy in his playing and in his singing that just doesn't exist anymore that you know, the direct connection to the history of the music all fused together there and it just like an electric bolt went through the room it ain't there. And I don't, it never will be, I don't think, at this stage. It just won't because it's become just a thing. It's become a, a commodity. And it sounds like all of that it perpetualizes a lot of what we've talked about. Uh, if there aren't going to be any artists to continue this legacy and continue blues and be authentic in their own ways and be the next person on the chain, it's one of the reasons for that is likely because if they go and they try to play at a bar and they're not yet a big name, they can't necessarily play their own songs because they're probably going to get pushed to play a lot of these cookie-cutter songs that yeah. the tourists want them to hear. And that makes it harder for people to know your music, know your music identity, mm-hmm. and then that perpetuates their inability to break out of that shell and actually become profitable and make a career out of it. It sounds like it's all connected in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's another weird thing, too, where you've got pretty marginal guys being kind of lionized because they're the last ones left, you know? I mean, there's one guy I'm thinking of, I'm not going to mention his name, that curses a lot and gets real raunchy on Mike. And people just think that's the real deal because, ah, man, this old guy, you know, he's telling like it is. He's saying, you know, <laughs> words that start with F, you know, and everything on Mike. So that's really hip. No, that ain't really hip at all. B.B. King would never have ever done anything that crude. You know, it's just silly stuff to please the little college kids out there that don't know. They come in with their dates and stuff, and they really want to, you know. It's sort of like that what, the scene in Animal House where they go in there and <laughs> Otis Day and the Nights and doing the frat party thing, you know. That's the mentality there. So there's a lot wrong about what's out there. And most of my heroes that are left are so old at this point that they're not going to be playing much out, you know. I mean, one of the few gents left that from... 30, 40 years ago, I used to see all the time that plays on a regular basis at blues is Jimmy Johnson, who still sounds great. He's 88 years old. Wow. Plays all the way through the night, standing up, looks great, sounds great, still sings great, got the voice mm-hmm. as much as the chops on guitar and everything. But boy, we don't have many Jimmy Not Johnsons. Not a lot, left. no. I'm thinking of Buddy. I can't. Eddie Clearwater. Uh huh. Eddie Shaw, who has just had major heart surgery, but he's back now. And man, I mean, from that era, from the fifties era, that's where Jimmy Burns from a slightly later era, sixties, started out as a soul singer, incidentally, and a doggone good one. Chicago doesn't necessarily do everything it can, at least in the view of many people, to help foster that community. About as far away from it as you can get. Aside from the blues festival every year, it's about it. Well, you're aware that they moved the blues festival into a much, much smaller part of Grant Park now, which to me is when it, I I think we can say it officially jumped the shark this year. We're either going to have a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to do this, it's too crowded, or we're going to have a massive, you know, just a cluster of people, and it's going to be miserable. Either way, you lose. They've already killed most of the side stages. I mean, it's just insane to have done what they did. I think my guess is they want to kill it off, and this is the first step in doing so. 
you know, because it costs money to put on festivals like that. Oh, they lose money on it every year, yeah. You know, they're not putting as much into it as they used to, though, by a long shot. You know, right. They have the BBs and the Bobby Blands and the Johnny Winters and all those guys coming in. So, no, the city does nothing to help the blues, <laughs> just nothing at all. Unlike, and now they've got this corporate Blues Hall of Fame thing coming. I'm glad that's on my paper here because I wanted to ask you, how you felt about the Blues Museum that they're putting in the loop? I'd give it two years at the high. You know, really? there are a million. It's a for-profit too, which is going to yeah. be hard to garner donations. Yeah, I mean, who's going to go more than once locally? So it's all going to have to come off a of tourist. What we should do, of course, you're aware of the VJ in Brunswick. Both were in a building at 1449 South. Oh, yeah, Michigan, Record Row. That's just sitting there empty, decaying away into dust. Why not put something there? Let's say a Soul Hall of Fame. That would be kind of cool. Sure. Yeah. Or, or help the Blues Heaven Foundation down at, uh, at the old chess building. That needs to be run a heck of a lot better. You know, you look at the way Sun is run down in Memphis or the rebuilt stacks or whatever. People are lined up. That Sun thing, people line up down the block to get into there. The chess thing, no Nobody even knows it's there. It's really sad. Right. It's just another example of how Chicago is always lacking where so many other cities. Uh, Memphis is just like one big music museum, the whole downtown area and outlying as well. You go out to Stacks, you can go out to Sun, you could probably go out to High if you knew somebody, you know, because that's still a working studio. And then you've got Graceland, you've got Al Green's Church, you've got that Gibson Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or Music Hall of Fame thing. You can just spend a week there doing nothing but singing, seeing music museums. Sure. We don't have that in any mm, capacity. Nope. Really, we don't. And City Hall doesn't care. I got news. <laughs> I do yeah. not care. And they're going to kill off the Blues Festival. Watch and see. You know, there's no, there should be ten times the uh, support, monetary support for these things that they give. It's just it's – a, it's a crime. It's a travesty. And, you know, it – Let's close on a happier note yes. than, yeah. than the blues being uh, in both economic and artistic turmoil. Mm -hmm. But uh, over the years, and perhaps think back to when you first started listening to the blues, what do you love about it? Because you've dedicated your life in various capacities to covering it. Oh, the way the old stuff makes me feel, I guess, as much as anything in the musicians themselves. I mean, a lot of people in this business have a tendency to worship a piece of plastic as opposed to the actual artists themselves. And, you know, it was much more fun to see them live, see them do those songs and get the kick of actually, you know, experiencing the music the way it was supposed to be experienced. But uh, I don't know, it's not just blues for me. It's blues, soul, rockabilly, doo-wop, rhythm and blues, country all those, the great umbrella of all those roots music, it all fits together for me into one, you know, great thing. I can't imagine anybody not liking it, truthfully, <laughs> but they, I guess there are plenty of them out there. But uh, it's just the greatest thing in the world to I me. Mean, it's at this point, it's about all I care about other than people, you know, is <laughs> the music itself. And there's still, I mean, Bob Kester still has a record store out on Irving Park. He's still putting out records on Delmark. You've got Alligator, you've still got some labels. You don't have to buy stuff on eBay and Amazon. You can go out and shop and talk, meet other That's people right. that love the same kind of music you do. It's a communal experience, too, you know, the whole idea. You've got your record, uh, your your friends that love records, love CDs the way you do. You've got people to talk to about it and experience it with. So there's the friendship thing there, too. I totally agree. And I, uh, I will certainly say that 
two weekends ago, I spent three and a half hours waiting in a line at Dave's Records over in Lincoln Park for mm-hmm. Record Store Day. So it's alive and well among some people. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is wonderful. I did a radio show not long ago with Dave on Dave Hoekstra's show. Okay. We hadn't talked for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no reason not to buy physical product, and there's certainly no reason not to go out to the clubs and support the music. You know, whether you like the blues rock stuff or whether you prefer the older stuff, it's out there. And it's not that expensive, and, you know, I can't imagine not having those connections. Uh, Yes, it was more fun back in the 70s and 80s, but it can still be a great time. Anytime you want to do it, you can still experience it, not just in Chicago. There are other places, you know, Memphis, New Orleans. It's hard for us old people, I guess, to to get used to the idea that things change in a lot of ways. (laughs) <laughs> well, Bill, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me and talking about the blues and your book as well. And your book is, again, so wonderful and people can find it. I'm going to put it in the liner notes of this podcast. That's another beautiful thing with podcasts is I can have attached liner notes to this. Yeah. Uh, so all much. the info with your book will be in there. Thank you again. It was really a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Again, my name is Brett Stewart. I have been your host. A big thank you to Bill Dahl for taking time to sit down and talk with me about the blues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Be sure to check out his book, The Art of the Blues. It's fantastic. I love it. And also go on over to his website, BillDahl.com. Again, my name is Brett Stewart. You can find me on Twitter and on my website at BrettDavidStewart.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Chicago-based journalist Brett Stewart for sharing this recorded Bill Dahl interview with Chicago Broadcasting Network. You can learn more about Brett at TiltingWindmillStudios.com or follow him on Twitter at IamBrettStewart. I'll have these links and more information posted on our website at ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com. As always, if you enjoy listening to content related to Chicago history, Chicago people and places, as well as lifestyle and the arts, including Chicago musicians and authors, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website at chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com to be alerted that way when new podcasts or video content is added. By the way, if you need video production in Chicago for your business or organization, check out renoweb.net.